Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Most amateur geologists collect rocks that are rare or precious or interesting to look at in some way. But what if your rock collection were different from that? What if you collected only rocks that marked significant moments in your life? If you were such a rock collector, what would we find encased behind the glass in your basement? probably find a Petoskey stone from the Lake Michigan beach where you spent every summer of your childhood. You might find a decorative boulder from your mother's garden at your childhood home. Maybe there'd be a pebble from the half-mile-long driveway that approached your ancestral farm. You picked it up when you went home to bury your grandfather and to sell the old homestead because no one wanted it any longer. Maybe there'd be a Belgian block left over from that time you repaved your driveway with the help of your teenage sons. And maybe you gathered up a brick after the demolition of the beloved but obsolete old main building at your alma mater. And surely we'd find the diamond that you gave the love of your life 60 years ago. The funeral director plucked it off her finger when he closed the lid for the last time. This rock collection would be like an eccentric photo album of your life, what you archive that is most important to you. And we'd learn quite a bit about you if we examined such a collection. Now, as it turns out, Kenilworth Union Church is just such a rock collector. You've noticed that mortared into the arches of our cloister walk out here are 12 stones from places that are significant in the history of global and American Christianity. I thought it'd be worthwhile to look at those stones and why this congregation chose exactly those 12. Cloister walk was built in 1958. I'll tell you more about that in weeks to come. Why did our forebears from 1958 choose exactly these 12 stones. It could be, of course, that this rock collection is just arbitrary. Maybe it's nothing more than the reflection of one family's global meanderings. Wherever they chose to go over the course of many years, Kenilworth Union inherited just those bricks. Or maybe one summer the church's trustees from 1958 told the congregation to collect stones on their summer vacations. And so 57 years later, we're still stuck with whatever they all brought back that summer. Probably, though, the collection is more intentional than that, right? Do you catch a common theme in the stones in our cloister walk? Sinai, Nazareth, Damascus, Eisleben, Plymouth, Shadwell. You hear a common theme? It seems to me that the common theme is the mind unfettered or the spirit unshackled. These are places where slaves are freed or revolutions begin or movements are born. The Christian movement or the Protestant movement or the American movement. 
These are places where brave but lonely pioneers stood up to prevailing authority and forged a new path. These are places where imposed doctrine and required ritual go to die. That's the legacy our forebears from 1958 left to the Kenilworth Union Church in 2015. Now, if we decided someday to add more bricks to our cloister walk, places which are significant to Christianity and have become so since 1958, what will we gather? Maybe we'd go to Montgomery, Alabama and gather a paving stone from the street where Rosa Parks got on the bus and took a seat and wouldn't let it go. Or maybe we'd take a brick from Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta where Martin Luther King Jr. preached those sermons that finally culminated in that speech at Washington in 1963. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. That's the message of this collection. And Mount Sinai is the oldest and earliest location in the Cloister Walk. Mount Sinai, of course, was one of the first places the Hebrews stop on their journey from slavery in Egypt to freedom in Canaan. No one knows exactly where the biblical Mount Sinai was, but one possibility is a craggy, desolate 7,000-foot peak in the southern Sinai Peninsula, just east of Egypt, on the way, sort of, to Canaan. That's been Christendom's best guess for about 1,500 years. And the Bible tells us that God showed up at Mount Sinai one day and revealed something of God's self to God's people. And God's people learned three things about God that day. First thing that they learned is that God's being is an unapproachable splendor. As we learned again this week, God's ways are not our ways. This story is all smoke and thunder and earthquake. The mountain where God lives trembles and shakes, and so do God's people, gathered around its smoke-shrouded base, forbidden to come too close to God's shattering majesty. The story wants to talk to us about God's unapproachability, God's unknowability. God wants, the Exodus wants to say that God is the stranger, the alien, something completely different. Immortal, invisible, says the great old hymn. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes. All praise we would render, oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. A hundred years ago, the German theologian Rudolf Otto came up with a catchy phrase to describe the Almighty. Dr. Otto called God the Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans. I know that's a mouthful, but you're smarter than the average American, so you can take it. The Mysterium Tremendum et Fascinans, the mystery that makes us tremble, but also draws us in the mystery of which we're afraid, but also by which we're charmed. If you don't like the offertory and postlude to this service, don't blame Susan. It's not her fault. She's playing these pieces at my request. Do you know Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor? 
It's very strange and eerie and a little scary. When I was a kid, I called this piece the haunted house music because it made me think of ghosts and spirits and the netherworld, something I wasn't sure I wanted to meet. And I've always thought that Johann Sebastian Bach was inspired by this story from Exodus when he wrote this beautiful piece down. Listen as Susan plays it and see if you agree with me. So at Sinai we learned that behind all the burning suns and flying worlds is the Mysterium Tremendum at Fasanans. And that's what we come here every seventh day to honor. Not necessarily to understand, for God will always slip our cognitive grasp, but to adore and to praise. A couple of other things we learn about God at Sinai. Not just that God lives in unapproachable splendor, but that God is both the great liberator and the great lawgiver. And those two things go together. Mount Sinai, you see, is Israel's Philadelphia. Yes? This is where the nation is born. This is where God declares her independence, and this is where she receives a new constitution. Do you notice how God introduces God's self at the beginning of the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, I'm the author of your liberty. Just yesterday you were slaves and now you're kings and queens. Just yesterday you were living in hovels and slums and now you're on your way to a land flowing with milk and honey. Just yesterday you cowered in abject fear and now you will stand tall and live up to the full stature of the image of God. And this is what it means to live into the image of God. This is your constitution. This is the framework of your freedom. Honor God above all, reject cheap, false, inert deities, mind your tongue because words matter, rest one day a week, honor your father and your mother, cherish human life, keep your wedding vows, respect the property of others, always tell the truth, be content with what you have. That's it. It is the thinnest, leanest, most efficient constitution in the annals of human legal codes. They didn't invent it. All this stuff had been floating around in the ancient world. They just carved it in granite, literally, and made it the fundament of their common life together as a nation. It is the device that allows liberty to flourish and at Kenilworth Union, it still stands at the center of our common life 3,000 years later. The Roman orator Cicero said, we live in bondage to the law in order that we might be free. Yes, we live in bondage to the law in order that we might be free. Now, this constitution leaves ample room in its leanness for interpretation and disagreement. We wrestle with its meaning down the ages. The sixth commandment, for example, don't kill. What does that mean? Does that mean we can't kill terrorists by remote control with a joystick from 9,000 miles away? Don't kill. 
But what about Jokar Tsarnaev, the Boston bomber? Does that apply to him? Last week in the sentencing phase of his trial, the prosecution paraded one victim after another before the jury, arguing that because of what he did, he does not deserve to live. By a margin of two to one, Americans think that Jokar Tsarnaev should die. But here's the interesting thing. Among Bostonians, the margin is exactly reversed. Two-thirds of people from Boston think that Mitzer Tsarnaev should continue to live. That violence is not a fitting response to violence. I wonder what makes those people from Boston such bleeding-heart liberals. The prosecution's most prominent exhibit was the Richard family. No one was impacted by this event more than they. Martin Richard's tiny body could not withstand the trauma of that pressure cooker bomb, and he bled to death in moments. He was eight years old. His five-year-old sister lost her left leg. Martin's mother, Denise, is blind in her right eye. Martin's father, Bill, had his eardrums blown out. But the Richards family doesn't believe in the death penalty. They are advocating for Mr. Tsarnaev's life. It's a problem for the prosecution, actually. I will bet you anything that the Richard family is a devout Roman Catholic family and that they try to listen to Pope Francis. At the trial, Mr. Richard said, I lost most of my hearing, but I can still hear the beautiful voices of my family. He heard the beautiful voices of his family on opening day at Fenway Park because the children's choir from the St. Anne's Parish sang the national anthem. And there at the center in the front row was seven-year-old Jane Richard, Martin's brother, sister, in her Red Sox jersey, standing on her artificial leg with her hand over her heart. I wouldn't blame you if you disagreed with the Richards, but there is something almost holy about their devotion to the spirit of Sinai. It's as if those granite slabs have made them free from the need for vengeance. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. And so that is the first brick in our cloister walk. And it reminds us that God is the great liberator who unfetters the mind and unshackles the human spirit. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.